You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Program, especially on a Friday evening from 8 to 9 p.m. Talk and Alhamdulillah, uh, this evening he's back with us, our very own uh, attorney, Hafiz Muhammad Kubadia. Muhammad, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And to let you know I'm doing well, alhamdulillah, it's all your du'as and your listeners' du'as that are keeping me in good spirit. Alhamdulillah, jazakallah for all the positive responses and du'as that we're getting from your part of the world. No, absolutely. And Alhamdulillah, you know, uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us an amana, we hope and pray that uh, we fulfill his amana in the manner that pleases him most. And uh, mashallah, you know, you uh, got a double boon, uh, double blessings uh, coming uh, for you. Uh, the one being uh, that uh, you half is the Quran, uh, your Ramadan is there. And number two, you do the work of Dawah, which you are very passionate about, uh, Muhammad. And, you know, as we get away, uh, maybe a fortnight away, uh, tell me what goes through your mind, uh, Muhammad. So I didn't get the last part. I heard the half is part, the second part, we just cut off there. Sorry, Shafa, I just repeat that uh, second. All right, the second part is that you're also privileged in doing the work of Dawah, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you a double boon. You know, you being Hafiz, you being uh, Da'i. Yes, and, uh, Alhamdulillah. Know, and, and the beauty is that you've embraced uh, this work of Dawah. You, you're not doing it half-heartedly. The, the, the term that they use, you go in fully. Go for it, uh, Muhammad. So, you know, Ramadan is a very blessed month. A month I think each Muslim should have a desire. If they don't have a desire, they create an innate desire within oneself to be keen and desirous of receiving this beautiful month. So we know from the earlier generations that this was something that they were looking forward to even up to six months in advance. And for six months after Ramadan, they would pray to Allah that Allah accepts the effort during Ramadan. So yes, every Hafid automatically by default should be a person that is keen on Ramadan because Allah tells us Shah Ramadan Allah used the month of Ramadan together with mention of the noble Quran in the same verse. So it goes hand in hand, it goes without saying that a person who is knowledgeable in the Quran, a person that takes the extra effort to understand the Tarjuma the, the translation of the Quran and empowers himself with the tafsir. Um, he's a person who will naturally be keen on meeting Ramadan because if he was reading a particular amount of Quran in Ramadan, this opportunity of Ramadan will be an opportunity for him to increase and extend his good efforts. And with that, you know, uh, every, uh, I, I, alhamdulillah, I'm looking forward to the Ramadan and I hope that each and every person listening to this program has that same desire. Yes, 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 we understand. It comes with its amount of sacrifice. Absolutely, as you said, uh, the amount of uh, sacrifice. Uh, but when it becomes a passion, uh, you know, the, the, the word sacrifice uh, doesn't uh, appear. But, uh, you know, you just look for the next and the next and the next opportunity so that, uh, you know, uh, inshallah, hopefully, that our bank balance for the akhirah increases and that our love for our maker increases and that uh, he looks upon us uh, favorably and uh, you know a da'i a true da'i doesn't look at his salary or his pay slip at the end of the month i'll share a story with you muhammad of uh, sheikh ahmadi that rahimullah and uh, one day someone asked sheikh ahmadi that how much do you earn 
And he looked at the individual and he said, you really want to know how much I earn? He said, yes, how much do you earn? You know, because, you know, you've got a big Zawa organization and you're world-renowned and what do you earn? So he looked at the individual and said, you know what? At the end of the month, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives me a blank check and he tells me, write the figure. Muhammad? Gee, I'm sorry. I just the last part again. Sorry. How much does he earn? What did he say, Sheikh? He said, uh, you know what? At the end of the month, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives me a blank check and tells me to write the figure. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's exactly how we as a mu'min and a believer should be. The thing is, at the end of the day, if we leave, leave our tawakkal to Allah and we realize that Allah is our razik and He is the provider and Allah is the sustainer, then we will leave that completely in the hands of Allah, knowing full well that Allah will provide for us like He provides for all of His creation. There is an, a creation within the universe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not taken care of. So, you know, whether it's the daba, whether it's the animal, whether it's the creatures in the ocean, whether it's the creatures in the, in the sky, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looks after all of them. Absolutely, Muhammad, wallahu khayru raziqeen, and Allah says, and I am the best of our providers. Well, we're going to discuss uh, quite a few uh, topics, but uh, what we really want to know is, you know, here we have our elders in the ummah, we have elders uh, that uh, our fathers and our mothers uh, that have done so much for us, and in... Uh, you know, today's time, they say the zamana or the times have changed to such an extent that, uh, you know, children uh, are no more in the extended family, all are living in the uh, nuclear, you know, they all are in the I mode, no more in the V mode. And uh, parents are left, uh, you know, to themselves, the children will just do the bare necessities for them. But parents now, you know, even when they're owning properties and owning buildings, are left on their own and perhaps at the mercy of maybe their lawyers or the attorneys or whoever is the executor. Talk to us about this uh, scenario where, you know, we hear that a lot of elderly people are maybe sometimes swindled and, uh, you know, uh, when they're owning property or getting the wrong advice. What are some of the, uh, you know, uh, uh, pitfalls that they should look out for, Mohammed? So yes, obviously, you know, um, our elderly people need to be catered for, they need to be concerned, there is no income on their part, yet at the same time they're faced with their expenses, day-to-day -day living, every person must eat, every person must provide for himself in terms of clothing, he needs to have water, he needs to have uh, electricity, basic services are, uh, are required. And um, sometimes it can be extremely burdensome for the pensioners or even the disabled people because the income is limited. It's, it's, it's limited to pension grants and maybe some token from the children. But by and large, the vast majority of pensioners just live out of the SASA, the uh, monthly grants, pensioner grants. So uh, some of the pitfalls, of course, is that there are ways to, 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 to reduce your expenditure in terms of your home and your municipal account, and maybe tonight you can have a discussion on that. And uh, of course, you know, that would now entail your water, your electricity, your new municipal rates, and getting, uh, making these necessary applications with your local municipality will assist you as a pensioner. 
And then in many other things, of course, you know, um, some of the services provided by the city of Joburg, for example, library services or some of the sports clubs or uh, I have pensioner rates, pensioner days, some of the food food places or, or, or franchises or even supermarkets have days for pensioners where they would have specials and ways for them to reduce their expenses for the month, some of the things that pensioners need to be aware of. But I think from this evening's discussion, the discussion can take place around properties and property expenses. Yeah, Mohammed, I'm already looking forward to that. We just want to leave that aside. We have, uh, you know, we have uh, teased the appetite of the listeners. But uh, in the meantime, we have, uh, you know, maybe two or three topics that I'd like to bring up with you. And, uh, you know, talking about uh, 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 legal representatives and how they should behave in court. And there was this uh, uh, bad-tempered legal uh, man or young man uh, that went to court, showed a lot of disrespect. And uh, subsequently, he was barred. And then he's made a uh, uh, the Supreme Court of Appeal. He's appealed. And I, I think they also made a, a decision. No, we don't want you. Um, these young, you know, barristers or the young uh, lawyers that are coming through, why do they have, uh, perhaps many will say some do have a chip on the shoulder and they think our behavior, how we behave, uh, you know, with our friends and so forth, that we behave the same way in court. And, you know, recently you saw in in, in court also when Zandile Gumede, the phones were ringing and people were making noise and she and uh, her attorneys too were uh, disrespecting the judge and the judge had to reprimand them and so forth. What's really happening is the chaos that's happening outside is entering the inside of the courts where once upon a time it was a respected, you, you couldn't hear a pin even fall, uh, Muhammad. Gee, I don't know what's happening with the integrity of the legal justice system if we're going to continue to take in officers of the court who do not respect legal procedure. So you're talking about something that's happened very recently. I'm aware of it. The Supreme Court of Appeal then refused to admit a person because one of the criteria to being admitted as an attorney or an advocate is that you need to be a fit and proper person. So fit and proper person means that by and large, you fit around the social norms associated with being an attorney. So there is a level of respect as a professional that is expected of you. You know, um, And in this country particularly, we have a different criteria. You may find that the criteria in other countries, for example, when I was in India, I noticed that a lot of attorneys would work out of their car. They would use the boot of their car for their paperwork. And, you know, on the back seat of the car, they would have some, some computers. And, you know, you could consult with them right there in the street. But we've evolved and we're living in a different generation. And part of that would be that the person needs to have a level of integrity. So I, I conduct interviews on behalf of the Legal Practice Council where we would then uh, interview young um, entrants to the profession and in there we would ask them various questions and we try to ascertain whether the person is material whether he makes the grade and by that i mean that is a person by and large who is trustworthy who is honest he has a level of integrity um and 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 that's very important remember a lot of what an attorney does is based on trust a lot of a lot of what he does is based on integrity and honesty as much as people have a different understanding or rather a misconception of what the legal profession is about we have to defend ourselves because you know the old folks like to make 
um, like to like to take a swing at us from time to time. You know, you're lawyer, liar. It's it's, it's it's these types of things and jokes that we sometimes face with, but we take it in stride. But what I'm trying to say is that we are officers of the court, and everything we do surrounds ourselves as being the type of people who are, have the level of honesty and integrity. So, for example, we do commissioning of documents, commission of votes, and we expect people to come to us. And there must be a level of trust in what we what we are doing. So if we certify that a document is a true copy of the original, or we certify that the affidavit has been signed indeed by the deponent and the person who purports to sign the document, we have to do these necessary checks and balances because it may do, go to a court, it may go overseas, it may be used for some official documentation, and unfortunately, sometimes it could even be used for fraud. So the nature of what we do is burdensome. The nature of what we do needs to be underlying uh, underlined with a level of honesty and integrity, so much so that we ha- we uphold our name within the legal profession. So, 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 so one of the things is that you find that, um, like the courts in this country, uh, I have identified qualities for what is considered to be a fit and proper person, and we governed also in terms of the Legal Practice Act, which require integrity, hard work. Dignity, honesty, fairness, respect for legal order. If we're going to go and we're going to turn the courts into a circus, what's going to be the net result of our efforts is that the whole legal system is going to become a circus. If we're going to go in there, we're going to be very tardy. We're going to be very unprofessional. We're not going to be looking respectful. The reason we wear these particular gowns is because it carries a level of respect associated with it. So, for example, if you go into um, the, the speaker uh, in, in, in Parliament, for example, would be dressed like this. Judges would dress like this. Magistrates, people of and coming back, of course, from, you know, archaic periods, European periods, where certain people dressed in appropriate manner in order to achieve the respect that they required for them to carry out their roles. Yes, I understand that some, some people may take objection to this. Some people may not like or not deem it appropriate because they may have their own beliefs and understanding. But what you are fighting is a system that has been carried on for hundreds of years and has shown itself to be successful by that very, by the nature. So for example, if I'm going to give a talk, whether it's in a masjid or whether it's in a school, if I'm not dressed appropriately, if I come there and my shirt is not ironed, I still got the stains of yesterday's curry all over my sleeves. If my trousers are, appear to be disheveled or my, my hair is not you know, appropriate, oh, my beard is like all over the show, then I'm not going to send the correct message about what I'm trying to say by my appearance. And, you know, we, 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 this is just the nature of how we perceive things to be. So the students or the audience looks at me and look at, looks at me and say, this guy himself is not, a pro, uh, is not bothered to, to, to wear the appropriate garments or to dress appropriately con, uh, considering that he's going to address us. The level of respect automatically is lowered. So like that, people, there are many reasons. And and in this particular case, I don't know what the issues were. But I mean, a person who comes from a background of criminality, if you you come back and the courts have found that you've been convicted for multiple offenses involving dishonesty, dishonesty, stealing from previous employers, just just, um, hacking into people's systems, is this the type of person we need? In our fray, in 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 our uh, um, sorry, in our uh, legal fraternity, because I carry millions of rands of my clients' money, and if my clients can't trust me with 
a thousand rand or ten thousand rand or ten million rand, then what purpose do I serve then as an attorney receiving their monies? And you know, you know from past experience, your listeners know that. I mean, the property business. And being in the property business, we're handling a lot of money on behalf of clients. People are buying and selling properties, and it runs into millions of rands at a time. And, you know, we, there's a level of honesty when we deal with attorneys. Another attorney would phone me, and he requires to receive the funds into his trust account. And, we, you know, we would pay over. We don't expect him to squander our client's money. We expect him now... Uh, he's received the money on behalf of our clients. He needs to invest it appropriately or, appropriately, or he needs to use it appropriately. Imagine you have to start now double-checking the veracity, the integrity of each and every attorney. My day won't come in uh, to an end. There'll always be efforts that we need to make. So up to a particular point, we expect that the people in the fraternity are honest, they have integrity, and they're not just out there to defraud anybody. Yeah, Mohammed, uh, you know, a brilliant information coming through again. You talk about the attorney, you know, attorneys over the. I, I believe it's a trust fund that you have, and the trust fund, is it uh, who's the signature to it? You and your partners, or is it only you uh, that has a full control over the trust fund, uh, especially for your practice? So I, I actually run multiple trust accounts because I, I have different interests and my clients require different services. But to be honest with you, um, in a sole proprietor, there is only one signatory. In a partnership of two or three or four members, uh, then, then you'd find that the signatory instructions, signature instructions to the bank would change. But hypothetically, in my sole practitioner, I could remove a million rand from my trust account, transfer it to my personal account, and it would only be maybe at the end of the year when the auditors see it. I'm in financial trouble. I've, I've lost my circumstances around me has now suddenly just gone south and I'm in big financial trouble and I remove a million rand and I know that the auditors would only come in at the end of the year. So yes, that's how many attorneys have been struck off the roll. That's how unfortunately people have not, they've ended their careers disastrously because when the client then comes in and says, Mohammed, I need my million rand, I've decided to cancel the sale and I'm going to buy another house down the road. I must be in a position to refund him and every other client that walks into my offices. So tomorrow, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's a rumor circulating that attorney Mohamed Kuvaja is going to steal everybody's money and everybody walks into my offices today and I have 10 million rand of clients' money, I must be able to refund 10 million rand today. The minute I start fumbling, the minute I start now making excuses, there's already a level of suspicion about, amongst my clients to say, wait, I thought my money was safe in the trust account. Remember the money in an attorney's trust account is protected. Misappropriation, um, the attorney gen could generally take out the covers for fraud so I could receive for example, an instruction from a client, he could phone me and say, listen, please transfer the money into XYZ account. I need to also, you know, think things carefully and say, wait, did he phone me because somebody had a gun next to his head? What's the circumstances? Is he somebody impersonating my client and he's going to send me another party's account because he's going to defraud my client? Uh, what? So we have to take certain steps into, into consideration. Phone the client back, verify the account numbers, make sure that you are making payment in accordance with strict instructions of a client because tomorrow if he turns around and he finds out that you've made payment erroneously, he's going to put the blame squarely on your shoulders. And when you're dealing with large amounts of money, one or two million rand, it could break any sole practitioner. You wouldn't sleep at night 
and you and me know of attorneys that unfortunately made payments mm. and suddenly they were in Sakrat and they couldn't sleep for months on end and uh, reaching out to anybody that was able to give them, afford them some advice to say, wait, try this, let's see this, phone this person, get, get the client to pay the money back. It can happen, you know, so many times. And I, I mean, there was judgments against attorneys many times for, 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 for mistakes and errors. And sometimes, you know, uh, I had there's a court case not so long ago where somebody hacked into the system and informed the client to deposit the money into a third-party account. The client thought it came from the attorney, and as a result of which now the attorneys had to reimburse the client. So we're living in such disturbing times that any innocent party can get caught up in cybercrime. Any innocent party's emails can get hacked. Professionals, I've seen advocates, I've seen attorneys' accounts being hacked. I see them make simple errors like click onto links that they were not supposed to click onto, and as a result of it, malicious software, software that was then brought onto the system, and unknowingly, they then divulged confidential or sensitive information about their bank accounts and their passwords and that type of thing, and then a problem escalated. So, yes. We also are exposed, and we expose quite a bit because we deal with a lot of clients' monies, and we need to make sure that we have checks and balances in place. We need to make sure that we have uh, the necessary cover or that we take the necessary steps even within your firm to make sure that any any payments are double-checked and triple-checked. And, and there's no such a thing as never making uh, having enough checks. You know, There's always a need, or rather there should always be um, systems in place that you are fully comfortable with the payment when you make huge amounts of uh, payments to third parties and to clients also sometimes. And unfortunately, this is advice that we can give to the to the younger generation coming in that part of running a business and managing a business is to make sure that you have whatever necessary protection and security that you have so these things don't come and, and create a, a speed bump in your career because it can knock you out of the waters and blow you out of the waters that you know you won't be able to practice if you're sitting with a huge debt burden because somebody hacked into your system and stole your money from your trust account. Uh, Jazakallah for that advice. And, uh, you know, I know you and I had a common friend uh, that uh, he nearly lost his, uh, his livelihood. He was nearly barred by the, uh, by the society. But, uh, you know, in mitigating factor, he showed that, you know, he did, uh, he was uh, conned by this individual and this in- individual wormed himself into his heart. And uh, something with the same uh, trust fund. And the guy told him, yeah, this is a genuine property and this is genuine. And it uh, appeared that that property had been sold two times over. And uh, thank Allah that uh, somehow or other our friend had to pay an X amount and uh, the, the, the fund play, paid X amount. But he was actually conned by the individual. And in, in this, his case, he, uh, he, he was lucky that he, he made ends meet. And today, he's, okay, he's got a good job. But uh, how many succumb, uh, you know, how many of our attorney friends uh, get sucked in uh, by a con artist, uh, Mohammed? You know, so, so whilst uh, you know, there is a level of insurance cover automatically, remember the money that's kept in an attorney's trust account is for the benefit of the client but the interest that gets accrued on that account actually goes to the law society. And that interest that gets paid to the law society is used as an insurance premium. So they build up a reserve so that tomorrow the, the attorney misappropriates funds. So if the attorney now intentionally, willfully took out a million rand from his trust account. There was an element of fraud. Um, there was an element of theft in that uh, in that 
uh, transfer, then the attorney's protection would kick in by virtue of his insurance. They would then investigate him, and chances are they would strike him from the role. On the other hand, if you have an error where the attorney then makes a mistake and he make, maybe makes a payment to a third party, that he, he's not covered in terms of the uh, legal, uh, uh, the professional cover that he gets automatically, and the clients are not covered against that situation. So I, I've had a client that came to me, and the attorney then asked the client if there was any chance that he could use the money. He could use the money from the trust account to just tide him over until he was able to uh, sort his finances out, and the client being um, being 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 innocent, in the situation appearing to be innocuous, the client then gave him the necessary permission. He said, Go ahead and use this money, and when you get the money, you can pay me back. And it so happened that the attorney went insolvent, and the client then lost his money because the attorney was legally able to transfer money out of his trust account by the client's permission into his personal account. So see how quickly the circumstances change from being protected. If the attorney never asked him and he never gave consent, his money would have been protected. But because he gave it, now automatically he released the trust and the protection that he had within the trust account. So yes, uh, you know, uh, the situation is such that every attorney has that's practicing must have a trust account because he will be receiving money. Whether he's doing debt collection work on behalf of his client, whether he's just even in a simple situation, he's collecting school fees, he needs that money, needs to go into a trust account because that money belongs to his client. He's free to debit out whatever legal fees he needs to debit, but by and large, the money is held intact in the trust account. And his client, in this case the school, would then advise him at the end of the month, please provide me with a reconciliation. I know who is paid and who hasn't paid, and then transfer the money into account. Yes, so that's what normally happens. So attorneys, no matter whether you're doing third-party funds, whether you're doing uh, property sales, whether you're doing estates, whether you're doing, there'll always be a need for you to have a trust account, and there'll always be a need as an attorney. It's actually in terms of the law that you need to be running special trust accounts each turn its part and parcel and now it's being such in terms of new rules that even advocates who previously never had trust accounts they could open up trust accounts because there is also a need now for advocates who venture into commercial work or uh, litigation or something to have trust accounts but yes uh, by and large every attorney in the country has a trust account Alhamdulillah, Jazakallah khair, Muhammad, for that. And I'm uh, thinking aloud, uh, those that get barred, uh, do they get barred permanently, not allowed, or do they serve a term, uh, you know, maybe five years or four years or ten years, and then they're allowed uh, back into their profession, Muhammad? So you could be settled with many, many types of uh, punishments uh, if it involves fraud, and an element of fraud or theft of trust monies, generally it's uh, it's an element where you you get stuck off the roll. And for that to happen, your legal practice counsel would then bring an application to court, and in the court application they would set out the relevant facts. That attorney ABC had a million rand. He ran into financial problems. He transferred that money fraudulently and without the permission of his client into his personal account. And that would be generally that scenario is sufficient for court to say this person is not a threatened proper person. 
and they would then disbind him. They would remove his name, and uh, he would now not be allowed to practice as an attorney. What normally happens is that this person would now set aside his time, and the longer time he's out of the legal profession, away from things, is an, a, a better opportunity for him to come back at a later stage. So if you just come in fresh after one or two years, the, I don't think the courts would be too eager to consider reinstating you because they feel that, you know, you may not have learned your lesson. Obviously, many factors, like how much uh, how much money was actually taken and, and situations like that. And was there, did you repay or did you manage to find a way to repay the people and whatever debt was outstanding? And, and like that, you find, but I found generally between five and ten years is when attorneys then try to climb back and get back into the the fray, and a lot of them then eventually after about ten years, I've seen successful applications come through at about that time. So yes, the courts don't ban you for a particular time, not from what I've seen, but they always say this attorney is no longer fit to be a, an attorney, and then he's removed, uh, your name is removed from the role, as a result of which you set it out. So you could work in the legal industry, but not in a position of trust like an attorney. You could, for example, if you know, have a lot of experience, you could actually work in a legal firm as maybe advisory capacity or clerical work or going to court in, or maybe sitting in on some of these note-taking I don't think some of the, uh, a lot of them have actually taken then uh, the profession in a way that they would want to be seen again or where the laws, uh, legal practice council would see that as being some sort of violation of your ban. So in the same way, we employ staff in our offices who are not attorneys. So I have a secretary who answers the phone, and from time to time she may sit with a client and you know uh, explain to them or show them one or two things. We don't, they, they do not act in the, any capacity as an attorney, they don't purport or represent themselves to be attorneys, but they're within the office structure and people know that they're just the secretary or the candidate attorney and that they have limited understanding and knowledge. So similarly like that, they could then position themselves within the legal fraternity um, or, or maybe if they know about properties, they could get employed within the estate agency fraternities or maybe they could provide accounting services to legal firms that doesn't require the services of an attorney. So bookkeeping and some sort of general basics that they were doing in their own practice. Yes, just so that they can, they're familiar with one particular profession and they're able to then practice in that profession. But I found it on average, you should wait about 10 years, which is a huge chunk of your working life. On average, a person could work about 30 to 40 years before they would either consider retiring so if one third, if, if 10 years or, or one quarter of that time is removed and you're unable to practice, you know, you don't know if you, after 10 years you're still capable, you still have the name, the good name that's associated with being an attorney. I mean, it could be difficult because people may not trust you any longer. So whilst you may be admitted as an attorney, people know there's a reputation about this attorney in the past, he stole some money. And uh, as a result of which, I'll be a, a feeler, but although you know you may be protected, you to obviously have be reluctant and hesitant to want to invest millions of rands and deposit it into trust account whilst that fear and that threat hangs over you. So that may be some personal prejudices against you in your pro professional capacity. Yes, sir, Muhammad. You know, whilst you're talking about, and you talk about uh, being stigmatized, and once people get to know, hey, he was struck off and uh, so forth. Uh, I mean, 
let's be honest, the people talk about it. And it, uh, whenever they see the individual, too, although he's in public place and so forth, he'll always, I mean, I'm sure he, uh, the, the, the individual that was a struck off uh, would feel rather very uncomfortable to even go in public, uh, Mohammed. I suppose, you know, uh, with the, our community, firstly, being a closely knit community, number two is that we, these are sensitive issues involving financial transactions, and as a result of which, you know, wise, once bitten, twice shy, if a person was unable to manage his finances previously, although, you know, he's, he's shown himself to be remorseful, he's shown himself to be fit and proper, he's shown that his conduct has changed, at the end of the day, what they say, a leopard doesn't change its spots. So you could have that, yes, and, and I, I know you, sometimes you may sympathize, there could be a genuine case. But now, like any business, tomorrow if you find that XYZ burger place had worms in their burgers, there's a negative stigma associated with that business from, for a long time to come. And it, sometimes the business may never overcome that stigma as a result of which they have to close their doors. So you can't force people to support and to patronize certain professionals, whether it's doctors. Doctors, unfortunately, sometimes go through the same stigma. They may have made an error in the, in the operation or in the procedure or in the diagnosis, as a result of which a person could have died. There's negativity associated with that. We live in the community, once again, where people, um, people, people the, this type of talk is, uh, it becomes public very shortly, and it becomes, it goes out to, into, the, into the community. So yes, Unfortunately, you still, at the end of the day, whether you're running a legal practice, a medical practice, an architectural practice, you're running it as a business, you need to show a positive side, you need to show a healthy business attitude, you need to be a person who is a good, um, uh, 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 just just, just a congenial person who is congenial in his approach, and people can trust him and understand him and respect him for what he knows, and he needs to be approachable at the same time, like any good businessman would be the nature of any good, good businessman is that he is approachable at the same time. Uh, Mohammed, you know, I'm tempted to ask you this question because you're also in the uh, Dawa field. Uh, you get many Dawa organizations and, you know, sometimes uh, uh, people question, they, uh, right, they have a trust account and who the signatures to uh, are to those accounts. And uh, many have complained that uh, so many Dawa organizations and uh, maybe, uh, you know, ulums are springing around there, uh, run by people from out of the country, not uh, local South Africans, but people from India or Bangladesh or, you know, Pakistan, opening up Darul Ulums. Um, you know, we want to know what are the, the, the banking details. And most of the institutes uh, do not declare publicly uh, the money that they received and so forth. What is the law regarding this? Uh, every, I believe every uh, public organization or, you know, even uh, any organization that collects public funds should be an open book. Your thoughts, uh, Mohammed? You know what happens is that primarily, um, primarily, and, and this, is, this is, you've opened up a can of whoops. Unfortunately, I have to say it, but I've seen it happen so often that I go mad when I look at this. I'm involved in a religious organization as well. But sometimes you have these one man or two man religious organizations where there is absolutely no auditing, there's absolutely no transparency, where there's absolutely no accountability. So these people would go out in Ramadan and this is this would be the month they would go and they would raise half a million rand and one million rand. And immediately after Ramadan, he pays off his bond. 
immediately after Ramzan, he goes and he buys a new car for 500,000. He's collected a million rand. The children pay fees. He now thinks to himself, you know what? If anybody deserves to receive this million rand, it's me. I've done the hard work for the whole year. So he sits in his office. He writes out a check for himself. He says, I am the principal and uh, I'm only accountable to myself, not thinking even about Allah when he made a statement. But he writes a check out to himself because he's a million in his account and he writes a check to a million rand. And he says, you know what? I done. This is what is due to me. Now, who, who would be in a position to go in there and to check and to when his collectors come around to you you have absolutely no knowledge what's happening in his office he is not an uh, organization that is getting vetted and audited there is no public accountability there's absolutely nothing that we can they checks and balances don't even have a board that can approve these types of things and i think sometimes when you give to these organizations and you see it's a one or two man operation that's doing tower, that's running madrasas, that's doing feeding schemes. Believe you me, Shafat, and because maybe I'm involved in the Dawa organization, I have people literally throwing money at me. Moment when you're going out to do Dawa, please come to me and please let me assist you. I said, giving me the money is the easy part. I have to go and go buy them, uh, the, 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 the ingredients. I have to then sit with the cook and the cook would cook it and then I would need to load it up and I need to go feed the people. Don't think you're doing me a favor by giving me 10,000 rand. Yes, Alhamdulillah, Allah reward you for your intention. But I suggest you rather go and you give that money out yourself. People would love to give me money because that's the easy way to feed people in Ramadan. I understand, you know, not everybody is capable of doing it. Not everybody has the desire to do it. And with all these things said and done, that's obviously something. But at the same time, how many more organizations don't say no? How many more organizations are receiving by the tons? I've seen, unfortunately, you know, not organizations, but people lesser down recipients actually selling the teas and the sugars because they receive like 10 bags of flour and they don't even bake. There's no need for them for flour, so they're going to sell it. Those things ordinarily sell for maybe 100 in a bag. They would sell it for 20 and even because they got it for free. So collecting money during this time of Ramadan or giving money in this time of people need organization that I'm giving money to. Are they, are they doing the type of work that I can open and ask them, Molana Sap, Amir Sap, uh, Mr. Manager, what is your salary? What is your commission for coming here to my business and collecting? Are you collecting 10% and 20% or 30%? I need to know this. And, and let me say at the outset, it's not wrong for a person to collect a percentage, but you as a donor, you need to know what percentage is going into into the the, 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 the the collector and what is eventually getting to the organization. And then if the organization collects a million rand, how are they spending the million rand? I seen some Islamic organization renting places and premises that the money goes to non-Muslim organizations, churches or uh, uh, religious, non-Muslim religious institutions and they own a property and Muslim organizations it's supposed to be Islamic organizations are supporting them so then what's the net result of that that your zakat money goes into their rent it's going to support now the temple down the road I mean is this consideration it's, it's a huge thing when we have these situations of Islamic organizations Look and ask questions. You have a right to say no. You have a right to investigate the books. You have a right to say, you know what, I would rather take my donation and I'd like to give it out. 
for food, we get a lot of money. And Allah reward those people. Today, if we need to build a masjid or a musalla, believe you me, I would have a flood of money coming in because everybody wants to involve, be involved in building a madrasa or a masjid. But you know what it cost me to build a musalla? 100,000 rand. I can come out with building a, a musalla. I don't even need 10 million rand, 30 million rand, and 50 million rand like what the other masjids are collecting because the masjids and the musallas that we build are basic, they're rural, they're very economical. We don't go out of our way to spend money on it. You know, we could spend money on solar system. If somebody gives us a solar system and say, put this in the masjid, we say, listen, we don't mind. We'd like to put it in. If it gets stolen, don't, 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 don't turn to us. If you want to put it in there, there's the masjid, there's the imam, speak to him, get your guy to install it. This is how we've done now recently with people that wanted to assist and contribute now. They feel that the masjids need to upgrade to solar systems. We're doing these things, but we don't want to have responsible. Whatever we do is very basic and elementary. The carpets we put sometimes are removable carpets. So if it rains, they take the carpet and they put it one side so it doesn't get wet. So it's just the way we run our system. We don't need millions of rands for feeding because it doesn't cost millions of rands to feed people. We don't need millions of rands for masjids and musallas. We have we print thousands of books. Alhamdulillah, uh, my book uh, now, uh, Basic Islamic Principles, we're printing another 10,000. It's costing us a small fortune. We do this every once in a while because our work is dawah. This is the main thrust of our business. We've calculated, alhamdulillah, for every 10,000 books we print, at least about 100 people accept Islam. So it makes it worth the trouble to invest uh, thousands of rands in uh, these books because we can see the reward. And at the end of the day, if there is no dawah, that is, uh, uh, there is no people accepting Islam, um, when you hand them the book, you will never know what Allah has opened up, in what way Allah will open up their hearts. Maybe their children's children will pick up a book and say, my, my grandfather used to read this particular book. Let me see what's it about. Or it's in his library, in his drawer, in his dress. And maybe the grandchildren will accept Islam. So, you know, this is, this is what we're doing as an Islamic organization. Not that I'm promoting my Islamic organization. I believe all Islamic organizations need to be promoted equally. What I do is nothing unique and nothing special. But... Alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided for me in my business that I can use for my dawah. So we don't even make an effort. In fact, I told them in future, remove all the bank account numbers from our books. It's taking up space. We rather put dawah material information in there in the 10, 10 centimeters by 5 centimeters that we're going to throw our bank account numbers. Uh, whoever contributes, we also discretionary about how much we need every year, what we need. And if we have money to pay for our services and our utilities and our expenses, why should we go out and collect money? So many masjids are sitting with millions of rands in their bank account and they're still going and collecting every Fridays in the masjid. So you want to do yourself... But is that fair? Is that right? Is it the, uh, are, do we now lose the wakil in Allah? Or, or is this, you know, a sign of the end of times where everybody wants to eat with two hands? Shafat. You know, Muhammad, uh, the last uh, statement you made uh, was a very a telling one indeed, uh, where, you know, you're collecting zakah funds, the lilla, and so forth. I mean, the money co- uh, collected, especially your zakah, shouldn't be there for even a day or two in your bank account, uh, but they're banking that money. And some of them have uh, literally millions, 14, 15, 20 million rands of zakah. Uh, Muhammad, uh, your thoughts on that? Uh, 
So true, so true. You know, sometimes when I don't know where I came across this, but you should liken zakat to be like coal in your hands. The longer you hold it, the more it's going to burn you and find an opportunity to dispose. And we know and we understand, and maybe it's another misunderstanding, is that zakat is only given out in Ramadan. Zakat is not only given out in Ramadan. People need to eat through the year. People are hungry through the year. People need to pay for debts through the year. So it's a year-long process. But you as an individual, we need to be prudent about our zakat and we need to understand that uh, are we giving it out to an organization, firstly, that has a level of transparency? There are some Islamic organizations that help Muslims and non-Muslims. Are we giving them our zakat? Are we giving them money that was supposed to be only now? I mean, uh, the, the, the verse of the Quran talks about the eight categories of the recipients of the zakat in so so the quran the verse is there that talks about the various categories and if we don't know we need to check it up we need to ask an alim please interpret what these verses mean to us and at the same time so so you know just giving it out to a non-muslim doesn't make sense in some Islamic organizations, you see them. They're doing noble work. They're doing charitable work. But are they doing it with our zakat money or lilla money? Find that out. They're going and they're providing blankets in the event of a flood. But was that your zakat money or was that your lilla money? Was that some other money that was specifically for this purpose? And yet through the year, uh, we, we, should be, we should find ways for us to channel our zakat monies in the way that it has a level of integrity a way that is pleasing to the recipient and not just haphazard or throwing it into an account of a central organization and not realizing for every thousand rand that organization collects, there may be the expenses may be 500 rand. They may be sitting with 50% of expenses because they have a thousand volunteers. And if you work out the salary at 10,000 rand a month, it's what? A million rand or 10 million rand that they're going to be spending every month just on salaries. And then, uh, so it's 10 million rand for a thousand employees and, and the big organizations, volunteer organizations may have that amount. Or even if they've got a hundred people at, at 10,000 rand, it's a million rand salary bill every month. So the first million rand comes in is the salary bill. And then they've got vehicles, 20 vehicles. Then they have insurances associated. Then they have rentals of all the warehouses and the offices. So unfortunately, are we spending money in an effort so that we can keep these organizations sustained and they may do a little bit of good work and because of that, unfortunately, the vast majority of our money is used to run and manage this or, you know, or should we be channeling our funds in a way that we don't even have to travel three or five kilometers? There are people within our, our community that are struggling and suffering and if we go to them, we would be in a position to bring them closer to the dean. And if these people are, you know, uh, these people can be encouraged to say, you know what, Alhamdulillah that I'm a Muslim, I'm benefiting, and this person is able to discharge his zakat, and one hand washes the other, and keep the person close to you, understand it, and bring him closer to the dean, Shafat. Uh, Muhammad, uh, you know, I think uh, this conversation perhaps is a divinely, uh, divinely you know, directed so be asking the, the questions that uh, very few people ask on air. And uh, what about that uh, bully, the bully collector? He stands at your door and he says, if you don't give me, you know, like I will make a bad dua for you. And if you don't give me, you have to give me, you know, and he, you have to give an X, uh, X amount. 
What's a legal recourse? Can uh, legally can you can you say I'm going to call the cops for you if you don't stop? You know, you know. I tell our Islamic organizations, religious organizations, when you go collect money, don't send the small guys in. You see, you need to send the big guns in. You understand? <laughs> and and that's generally what happens. And let's be honest about it. If um, if 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 um, Ramaphosa is to phone Shafat and say Shafat. I'm sending a, 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 a ship uh, now, uh, uh, you know, uh, to Turkey and for the victims of the earthquake. And uh, uh, Shafat, I'd like to you to contribute something. You'd be embarrassed to say, Mr. Ramaphosa, here's 200 rand for your ship. You know, okay. Mr. Ramaphosa took the time and traveled to call you. So you're going to think, you know what, I can't afford to give him 10,000 rand. But at least he'll feel dignified that I didn't offer him 200 rand and offered him 10,000 rand. So, you know, this goes out to some of the Islamic organizations. I've noticed, you know, when they phone around, then they put the big shots or where they send people to go and collect and they send the big shots because I can't embarrass myself when a small guy, when a big guy comes into my home or to my business and he says, I've come all the way to see you and I've given up my own business today to collect for this Islamic. Yes, so you bullied in other ways. It may not be the strong, hurly, burly guy that stands at your door and says, I'm not going to let you go. But they sometimes use pressure tactics because the person speaking to you is a prominent person in the community and Shafa doesn't act small. It's all within a person's own discretion of how he wants to contribute. Once again, you know, look at the organization and the value of the work that they're doing. And, and as much as, you know, we run our own Islamic organization, it's hard to say no to some of the people in the community, some of the organizations that are doing good work. They, we, we, we sometimes, you know, uh, I know annually we'd come, some of the schools, Muslim school or uh, schools in the areas where they would have children that require uniforms or require basic education books and these types of things and it's hard to say no that I can't give you a few hundred rands because I'm, I, I've already got my, my feeling schemes or we've got certain things in place so yes you do give out and, and sometimes you just get the bully so I don't know you know legally you're not allowed to bully somebody into a position because um, assault involves a threat as well as a physical uh, assault. So you could, somebody could physically touch you and assault you, or somebody could threaten you to say, if you do not give me a hundred rand, or if you do not do this, then I will, I could, I could harm you. So that's considered to be assault. But uh, I, I know, I, I don't know, I don't know if if anybody wants to use that after he gets uh, conned out of or he gets bullied out of paying a few rands towards an Islamic organization. But we have a discretion to say no, I suppose, and see what happens as a result of that. Uh, fantastic indeed, uh, Muhammad. You know, I'll share a story with uh, Sheikh Ahmed uh, D that, uh, you know, we learned the hard way. We were young men that started off with him, but uh, when it came to uh, collection, he said, no better, go out there and put something of a value into the hands of the businessman because he's working very hard. Give him a gift, even if he doesn't give you anything. Don't uh, speed. I think Adi that had the, uh, the, the, the wisdom. And we used to go out, uh, perhaps go to a business uh, or a huge supermarket that's in a predominantly African area and say, okay, why don't you print out uh, maybe uh, 10,000 uh, calendars with the message of, of Islam, just one line and have a masjid there and so forth. And I recall that one year um, that uh, I myself, you know, as, uh, as one of his dais, I did sales of over about 2 million rands. 
And uh, Didat said, you know, we'll give you 2.5% or 3%. And eventually he looked at me, he says, uh, do you still want the 2.5%? And I laughed at him. And I said, no, no, it's okay. You can use it for the organization. But uh, this is how, you know, you do it with dignity. It gives you dignity to go out and, you know, virtually you're not begging. What's your thoughts uh, there, Mohammed? I can't stop. I, I can never forget the day when IPCA received $1 million for the work that Sheikh Ahmadirat was doing. You know, it was it was in the earlier years, maybe in the 80s or something, where he, one Arab uh, donor gave him a million dollars. Those years, unfortunately, the rain was like equal to or even stronger than the U.S. dollar. So it didn't seem as much, but in today's day and age, one Muhammad, U.S. dollar is Muhammad, 80 million rain. I'm going to stop you there. It was, I put out an appeal on the, uh, the Al-Burhan, I was Dida's editor, that was in the 89. So 89. I said, you know, help us spread the message. Uh, two weeks later, the check was made out, pay Shafat Ahmad Khan, editor of Al-Burhan, one million US dollars. That was a check you're talking about. So you were, so you took the money, deposited into your account, and spread to Hawaii, and now you're recording this so, from Hawaii. You know what? 14 million, uh, it was 14 rands to the do, uh, to the dollar, I think, at that time. 14 or 17 rands, I'm not too sure. But no, that, that, that was no, a, no, no, no. In 89, the rand was is equal to the, the, the US dollar. It was 4 rand. Sorry, could have been about 4 rand. Oh, 4, not 14 rand. Oh, right, 4, 4 rand. rand to the dollar. 2 so rand at one stage, the rand was equal to, when I started traveling, rand was equal to, and at one stage, it was yeah. 2 rand to the pound. And the rent was stronger than the dollar. So, yes, exactly. things yeah. have definitely changed. You should have saved the check, deposited yeah, so, um, it now, <laughs> then you could have split the 18 million. And you I, well, I, I should have met you there. But uh, you know what? Allah, 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 you know, Allah knows we're honest. Allah was testing you. And, oh, no, it was. A, I mean, uh, but I was naive. I, I would never do a thing like that. I mean, I looked at it. I was so proud of her, you know. I that and I showed it to Sheikh. And uh, uh, the instructions came, don't show Shafat any more mails. I, I said, <laughs> okay, leave it at that. <laughs> Allah increase, give them, the people of Dawa, the opportunity and the ability to continue the work. I know uh, when I was sitting at the uh, IRF offices, uh, Dr. Zakir Naik, and uh, waiting for him, I waited for over an hour for him to see me. And the person in front of him at that time, his only job was to open the envelope, receive the check, write out the receipt, and put it one side. And in the hour that I'm sitting there, that's all he was doing, receiving the check, writing the receipt. And I'm sitting in an hour and I'm thinking, I can see checks here as if it's money. Only Allah knows best how much money in this hour and in these few days and how long. Is that 365? That's his only job, Allah alam. So yes, there was other organizations and our people continue to donate uh, plentiful to the dawah, which is, which is great. I believe that there is a need. A lot of organizations are struggling. But Alhamdulillah, I say once again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me the opportunity to be independent by and large from um, a lot of the donations that people want to assist. We can use our own funds. We challenge it to our own dawah. And like that, maybe the advantage is I have no bosses. I don't have to end the Monday to say I, I, I'm responsible. I can't say X, Y, and Z, or I can't do X, Y, and Z. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala watches everything that we do, and we try to do it in accordance with what would please Him, inshallah. I mean.
No, beautiful moment. And, you know, you and I have so much in common. I was blessed also, you know, the moment when I walked away from IPC. I stood in the dawa. I can't forget what uh, Didat did to me. Media put me into radio, into all script writing and this and that. He actually empowered me. And uh, my mama was my biggest, biggest benefactor. I mean, she told me, better. I don't want you to have any bosses. And she funded my dawa, my dawa missions. I mean, the Siemens Institute. And you talk about many other things that I did. And uh, mom, you know, Allah fill her with Noor was Ameen. there for me, you know, the, my, my backbone. And up to today, uh, the places, the properties we live in is mom. And Allah maybe, you know, gave her the height. There's your only son, you know, empower him. And Alhamdulillah, may, may Allah accept that. And with you, Muhammad, always a pleasure having you. Uh, I look at you as uh, one of my brothers. And uh, we love each other for the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Look at where our conversation has gone, but really very fruitful indeed. Perhaps your parting words uh, this evening. Gee, so firstly, I'd like to say Allah grant your mother Jannah to Firoz. It's sometimes these efforts by our parents that would lead us to reach the type of pinnacles that we do eventually reach. The du'as our parents are very important. In the same way that after Nabi Sallallahu passed away, Wahi stopped because there was no one to receive the Wahi any longer. Sometimes the positive du'as and the inspiration and the goodness that comes is only as a result of our parents' du'as. So we make, you know, we have, we should always make du'a for our parents for the du'as that they have given us. And we never can never be appreciative, too appreciative for our parents and what they've done for us. Most of which we can't even remember all the sleepless nights and all the difficulties and all the pains and all the sacrifices that they have to make. So Jazakallah once again from your show. We'll have to have a repeat show when if and well I'm welcome again Absolutely. onto your radio station. And Jazakallah Khair Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to our very own uh, attorney, Hafiz Muhammad Kubadia. Uh, alhamdulillah. Pray for us as we pray for you. Time for us to go for our break. And when we get back, inshallah, it will be truthful news. Wasail al-Alam al-Sadiqah. Let's go for the Isha Azan.